Well, this morning, I, I want to I uh, speak to you this morning on being a missional people. And I've got to be honest with you, this message is born out of frustration. It's born out of frustration. I'm not going to go into detail, but I just, there's something that's been gnawing at me for quite some time. Two things, actually. One is my apparent ineffectiveness in being missional. All right, and I say apparent ineffectiveness because sometimes we're harder on ourselves than anything else. But I think God uses those circumstances of our apparent failures to encourage us. Right, and secondly, we've heard how many we've heard the term missional almost repeatedly week after week. Right? Are you like me, and you're saying? Just what do we mean by missional? Is there anybody in that boat? Because I'll tell you, folks, I am. I, I am in that boat. Boys, there's no one putting their hand up. You all clear. Maybe we all need to go home. <laughs> because, if, because if you're perfectly clear on it, maybe, <laughs> maybe you can do this one today. Because, because you know what? I found that it's, it's been something that hasn't been clearly defined. And with God's help this morning, I want to try to clearly define it. And... I think it's. I think we need to do that. So I'm not going to be taking. I'm not going to be taking a passage out of Acts and going through line by line. Although we are going to use scripture this morning, I wanted to take this topic and illustrate to you what it isn't, and why it is that we call ourselves a missional people. And so, getting a Facebook message there that probably shouldn't be. Um, first things first. First things first a little bit of history for perspective. So I'm going to go through some of these things fairly quickly. So it's a good idea if you bring a notebook with you, a journal with you, uh, because some of these things I'm going to touch on and I'm going to leave. But um, I I, uh, spent some time on Thursday and Friday just reading through volumes and volumes of things. And I took a page out of Andrew Andrew Wilson, who is out of his book, who was with us a few years ago. He he wrote the book God Stories. Another one, Diluted by Dawkins. And he, he's written some great books. And uh, basically, I took a page out of, his, out of his advice, and he basically says, don't read all the books you can on a certain topic. Basically, find dependable blogs where guys have had the time to read them and find the synopses. And when you find something that really piques your interest, then dive in. So what I did was I found some, uh, some fairly reputable guys uh, and women who have commented on what it means to be missional and kind of pulled together some things. So this first bit is going to be a bit of a historical perspective. And so uh, the, first, the first resource that I found really helpful in this was Tim Keller. And Tim Keller uh, has a, a very large church uh, called Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And they're a, a church planting church. They've planted many churches out from themselves. And he basically uh, talks about and his approach to uh, defining what it is to be missional, he talks about uh, where, this, where this definition of missional has sprung from. It sprung from, um, basically, our past. And so he talks about Christendom. And he talks about, in the West, for nearly a thousand years, uh, the relationship of Christian churches to the broader culture uh, was a relationship known as Christendom. And so in that, people were Christianized by the culture through its institutions, so through government, through education, and through the church. 
the church was, the, you know, basically culture was, the, the culture was Christianized. So that we say, well, our laws come from biblical origins, right? So we, we that's just one example. We, we refer to that. I and mean, if you look at the United States and their history, you'll find all kinds of biblical references all over the place. And so this notion of Christendom um, being uh, a way of thinking, it's a way that the culture existed for uh, a thousand years. And though people were Christianized by the culture, they were Christianized in that they followed a Christian set of principles in law, for example, they weren't typically regenerated or converted um, with the gospel. And so the church's job, the church's job uh, was then to challenge persons with a vital living relationship with Jesus. And that's where we get, that's where we get the, the term evangelical. And so the evangelical world springs out of Christendom so that we have this, we have this Christianized culture. So that there's an assumption that the culture is aware of the basic principles of, of Christianity Maybe is not converted to them, but the church's job is to be evangelical in its speech to make the connections with the origins of the society and with, with the gospel. Is that clear? And so that's kind of our history, isn't it? That's our history as a culture. And there are great... Um, so we have this thing called the evangelical age in Christendom. So that goes back, you know, we're going back here a couple of hundred years. Now, there are distinct advantages and disadvantages um, to, to uh, Christendom, to this idea of Christendom. First of all, the advantage is, and uh, if you want to think about it this way, the advantage was that there was a common language for public uh, moral talk or moral discourse on what society would determine that was good. And so we would say that there's an absolute good or an absolute uh, good and evil, right? And so back 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, if you said something was good or something was evil, there'd be consensus on that. And so that was, that was the way culture was. And so there's an advantage to that. You have a point of reference from which you can evangelize because people, may, people automatically assume that there was a good and an evil. And so you could evangelize making the connections. Well, the reason why there's a good and evil is because of this. And they would link it to the Bible. They would link it to biblical stories. The disadvantage, the disadvantage that comes with Christendom is that Christian morality without gospel-changed hearts um, often led to cruelty and hypocrisy. And so we don't have to look too far to see the examples of that, but if you look back in history, you'll find that. For example, I remember back in the 60s when I was growing up in the early 70s when I was in my teenage years, that um, this, this whole idea of what was culturally or morally acceptable, i.e., for example, unwed mothers. If you were an unwed mother back in the 60s and 70s, it was a point of shame. And it comes from this cultural recognition of good and evil, but not connected to the gospel. So there can be abuse and there can be cruelty. We see elements of that today as well in the way that gays are treated. We see that. And so there's ideas there that we need to think about. Also, when it comes to our civil institutions, there can, you know, when, when you have a, Christi- a Christianized culture, 
There can be abuses of power that take place and the church in the past has turned a blind eye to it. And so sometimes it can look as if, and not sometimes look as if, but probably in reality, the church ignored things that it shouldn't have ignored. A big glaring example, World War II and the Jewish Holocaust. The church was sleeping. The church ignored it. The mainline church ignored it. And so there's a a good example of the way that Christendom and the ideas of Christendom was a distinct disadvantage. And so we've been on this accelerated slide away from Christendom since about World War II. The slide actually began this, with, with, with uh, realism and so on in the eight, 19th century. But after World War II, this accelerated slide away or down the, down the track from Christendom really took speed. There's a story of a British, a British miss, missionary. His name was Leslie Newbegin. And Leslie Newbegin in 1950 went to India, a completely non-Christian culture. You could not say that India was a stalwart of Christendom. And he went there and spent 30 years there and spent 30 years basically bringing the gospel and interpreting the gospel in a way that those people in India could understand. Living the gospel in every aspect of his life, he and his family. When he returned from India 30 years later in 1980, he realized and recognized that the Western church now too existed in a non-Christian society, but had not adapted to its new situation. And so the church, in the past 30 years or so, for a large measure, has not made that adjustment from being evangelical, in other words, in one piece of its life, If you want to think of a pie, you have the evangelical piece, and then you have other types of ministries that it would take part in. The church didn't make that adjustment to being all-encompassing in the way that it approached society because it hadn't made that shift. And so churches um, did evangelism. How many remember back in the 70s and 80s and maybe in the early 90s we talked about evangelism? And evangelism, what, what did evangelism really entail? Well, evangelism really entailed um, the emphasis on the authority of the Bible, personal conversion, and communication, usually, usually how? Verbally, right? And so that's, that's how evangelism was, was, was thought of. We don't hear, how many, of, how many would recognize, we don't hear a lot about evangelism today because of its one-dimensional appearance a one-dimensional way of thinking. We hear of this different word, this different word called missional. The church in the West hadn't completely, um, has not completely engaged with the non-Christian society around it. Uh, most, uh, most traditional evangelical churches still only can win people to Christ who are traditional and conservative. And so do churches grow? Yes. Even churches that haven't made the shift away from being evangelical, yes. But they really, most, for the most part, and statistics say this, they attract people who are conservative in their way of thinking. So it might be people who have grown up in the church. There, there'll be converts coming in or people who've had a church experience. But those who have had none seem to be the ones that are forgotten. And so eventually... 
evangelical churches, evangelical churches settled in the declining enclave, if you will, of Christendom have to learn to become missional. And if we don't become missional, which I believe and we believe is the alternative, then we're destined to decline and even worse, die. Now, Terry Virgo, uh, a number of years ago, wrote this book, Does the Future Have a Church? If you haven't read this book, go to Amazon and get it. Go to the Lighthouse and get it. Find it, get it, devour it, read it again and again and again. Because in this book, he addresses the very thing we're talking about today in a different kind of way. But basically, he opens up the book talking about how churches are closing everywhere. Now, we haven't seen a lot of that here, although we've seen some. We haven't seen a lot of it because our neck of the woods is traditionally conservative. But the further we get away from those moorings that we refer to as Christendom, we are realizing that really we're in a post-Christian culture. We cannot call our country a Christian country. That, that's ridiculous to call our country a Christian country. We're not a Christian country. We're a post-Christian culture. We don't have the roots. We don't remember the roots to our Christian past. We've been separated from it. So first, first things first is there is an alternative. So what are the nuts and bolts of being missional? What are the things that we need to think of? Because for me, being missional is the new buzzword in the church. Now, if you, five years ago, you wouldn't have heard the term missional. Five to six years ago, it just wasn't there. The term missional, you would have uh, heard the term relative to sending what? Sending missionaries to another country. Sending people to India. Sending people to Africa. You would have heard the term missional in terms of missionary. But what do we mean by being missional? We need to be clear as to what we in the Meeting Place Church are meaning by this. My own story of not being clear. I haven't been clear on it. I'll just be honest with you. If I can't be honest with you, there's no point. I need to be honest with you to say, I need to be clear on what it means to be missional. So what's meant but by the word missional? Well, to be honest, to different people, the word missional means different things. First off, to some, being missional means being individual and word-based. In other words, it's this, where every individual sees it their responsibility to preach the gospel. So there are some churches that see it that way. Now, that's really not a whole lot different, if you think about it, from being evangelical, right? And so that's one way that you can look at it. Secondly, being individual and deed-based. In other words, this interpretation sees being missional as um, God's overreaching mission is about justice and redeeming creation and social engagement and love for one's neighbor means living in a certain way. So the popular expression that was around was what? Remember this one? It was preach the gospel at all times and if necessary use words. Right? In and of itself, that concept of being missional falls short on a number of levels, doesn't it? Because what does it do? It leaves out the first one. It leaves out the idea of speaking the word of God, witnessing the word of God, sharing the word of God, 
Thirdly, there's missional as corporate and deed-based. So the first two, individual and word-based. Every individual's person, a responsibility to preach the gospel. Second, to be concerned about the deeds we do. Thirdly, we now come to the corporate or the church. We're corporate and deed-based. That's when we say, you know, we ask questions like, what programs, projects, or corporate things, church-wide things are we going to do of social action? When are we going to just go and do mission? Have you heard those ones before? Churches are, when are we just going to go do it? So there's this idea that, you know, some churches believe that being missional is this. And thirdly, missional is being corporate and word-based. In this one, the idea is that being missional is ultimately about preaching the gospel and about tailoring what we do when we're gathered together to make the gospel acceptable to people. And what's the common phrase that's used, the common term that's used to describe this one? Seeker-sensitive, right? And so there's that idea. So in and of itself, if a church is missional and this is their idea of doing church, it leaves a lot out, doesn't it? So in our definition, we would aim to encompass all of these. I think that's the thing that we need to think about. We need to think about the fact that being missional isn't just choosing one of these tracks to go down, but it's, it's encompassing the whole ball of wax. Really, rather than, um, you know, we need to think about the entirety of our lives. And not just every part of our own individual lives, but what it means individually, corporately, and indeed even globally. Because we can think of ourselves individually, right? Our responsibilities, our church responsibilities corporately. But globally, as a family of churches in New Frontiers, together on a mission, right? So I've come up with a definition of what I think it means to be a missional church, okay? And if you don't get it written down, we'll set, the notes will be sent out. But here's what I think, okay? And this is pulling together some different things. A missional church speaks of a, co- a community that doesn't see the church meeting as the main connecting point with unbelievers. So in other words, we're not here on a Sunday morning for the unbeliever. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, really why we're gathering here together is because our first and foremost thing that we do is we want to give recognition to God this morning. I think you saw that this morning. We were worshiping God. Our songs were directed to God. We were expecting God to speak to us. And he did. And he does. And so rather than, uh, as a community that doesn't see the church meeting as the main connecting point with unbelievers, rather, we meet people within their culture by expressing the gospel through the way we live. It's about living out a Christian counterculture and not retreating from the culture around us, but bringing the gospel to it in a way that is contextual through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this word right here, contextual, sometimes that throws people. Sometimes it confuses people. But the person in the New Testament that was the most contextual was Paul. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22, he talks about being contextual. He says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. To the Jews, I became a Jew. Becomes a Gentile when he needs to be. And he says in verse 22, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. And so he adjusts the message, not the content, 
He adjusts the message to whom he is speaking. And that's really important for us to remember. As John Lanferman says, the Great Commission is more of a promise than a command. So these things aren't a burden. It's a promise. And it was said this morning, I think it was, uh, who was it? Anne talked about God's inheritance, or maybe it was, uh, maybe it was Hazel. But was it Hazel? Tiffany, I'm sorry. But basically the nations are the inheritance of the Lord for us. It's a promise. The great commandment is not something that we live under the weight of. It's something that spurs us on because God gives us this promise of working with us. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Is there a scriptural connection to being missional? What I want to do just in these next few minutes is take a look at, through the book of Acts, where we've already gone this week, and take a look at some of the scriptures that illustrate and indicate a missional perspective of the scriptures. So we're getting a picture now. It's all-inclusive. We're not talking about one piece of our life. We're talking about in our entire life, everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we take part in is a reflection of God's kingdom in our lives that is now and yet to come. So the first one is the promise to be missional, Acts 1.8. But when you receive power, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So there's a promise to be missional there. Secondly, there's the missional nature of the Holy Spirit. I love this one. It's in Acts chapter 2. And isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit contextualizes himself when the, when the disciples are gathered, they receive the, the, the Holy Spirit for the first time. And what do all those people from multiple nations hear? They hear what? They hear the great things of God in what? Their own language. The Holy Spirit himself is a contextualizing spirit. He naturally contextualizes. And so we see the Holy Spirit relating to people from different cultures so they can hear him in the way that he speaks, in their own language. Isn't that incredible? The Holy Spirit helps us to be missional in our lifestyle. And those who believe were together and all, had all things in common. They distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. The result... What was the result of their doing that? The result was a tremendous witness, tremendous witness to those around, and says the Lord added to the number day by day those who are being saved. An amazing thing. When our lifestyle is so impacted that people take notice, guess what? People are added to the church. That's what happened in the book of Acts. Missional in meeting needs. Acts chapter 3, seeing... Peter and John go into the temple. He asked, uh, he asked to receive alms. And Peter, this is the, the crippled man. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So he's asking for money, and they give him health. And so, in, in being missional, we meet people's needs. In fact, what we do is we meet perceived needs. So this guy wanted physical health, but the real deal was, or he wanted money, but the real deal was his physical well-being. 
God bypassed, the Holy Spirit bypasses the need for money and gives him what he really needs. He needs a restored body and a confidence in God and a relationship with God. It's amazing. And so in meeting needs, we're missional. In Acts chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, and he goes on to, to preach to them, and, they, and it says in verse 13, And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived their uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they'd been with Jesus. Here's these guys that were just ordinary guys. So ordinary people like me and you are made missional in the power of the Spirit. They're like, who are these guys? Uneducated, common men, and they're schooling us on God's word. It's amazing. In Acts chapter 6, we see people being missional in their concern for the poor. And so that's when they chose seven to serve, where it says, now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose because there was discrimination in the church about who was getting uh, the daily distribution of food and needs. And the twelve summoned the full number and says, not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from you among, among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, and uh, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so there's a, heightened, there's a heightened recognition of meeting the needs of the poor that's missional. Isn't that right, Kelly? Phil, isn't that right? being missional. We saw an example of that yesterday. We, we went to the uh, Aaron and Christina's wedding and then we went out to Booty's Ice Cream Shop. <laughs> anyway, we were out there and they were having a fundraiser for the Village of Hope, which is a, which is a, a live-in facility out in Tracy, in the backwoods of Tracy, for those who have uh, substance abuse. And a guy named Andrew Vahi, who's Mart Vahi, who used to pastor Smeister Cathedral, Andrew Vahi's running it. And so we had a chance to connect with him yesterday. You just never know what God's going to do, right? I mean, that's another little bunny trail we could down, but we're not going to this morning. But the bottom line is this, is that here's, here's a guy that's being missional. He's being missional to the poor. Being missional and meeting people where they're at. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over there and join this chariot. We're talking here. Uh, um, when he, he ran up to the, Philip ran to him and asked him, reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, do you understand what you're reading? So he went up to the eunuch, knocked on the chariot. He was being obedient. He was meeting him where he was at. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. He, he went into the conversation not on uh, Philip's own terms, but on where he was at. It's okay. Missional in obedience and taking risks. Acts chapter 10. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. We already talked about that in the beginning of the message about Philip, or about uh, Peter and Cornelius. And the believers from uh, uh, among the circumcised of, uh, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And so he took a huge risk. He took a huge risk in being obedient. And in being missional, we have to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Because in a lot of the, when I looked at a lot of the definitions of 
what it was to be missional before I kind of glued one together. Do you know the thing that I find that isn't really there? There's not a whole lot of talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, I think it's assumed. But we have to be prepared to understand that the Holy Spirit is the author of what it is to be missional because he's missional. And finally, being missional with a global vision, just up to the point where we were last week in Acts chapter 11. But there were some among them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And when he, Barnabas, had found him, Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it's there where they were first called Christians. And so we have this global mentality of what it means to be missional, of planting churches. Tim Keller says that the solution, away from the, the slide into this decline that we've been referring to earlier, is to plant churches. Because it maintains the vitality of the church. It gives us something to do that is of eternal value. It reminds us of the power of God and what he's doing. And so finally, to, to close, we just want to give you a brief exhortation to be missional. And I'm just going to basically follow along with the points that I've just given you from the scriptures. First of all, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Folks, you have the promise of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is that which I have spoken of. This is that which was spoken of. You have the promise of the Spirit. We can be missional in our new nature. We are missional in our new nature. We have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of Christ. His activity oozes out of us. You can't help, in a sense, being missional. Because it's really the nature of the Holy Spirit to be that way. We don't necessarily try to be that way at all. Although we walk in step with the Spirit. Our lifestyle matters. It speaks volume. It gives us credibility with those that we're around. We embody a countercultural uh, way of thinking. It's in the way that we handle our money. It speaks volumes to people. Especially today, with the world on the verge of a global recession. It speaks volumes. How are you going to react to things as things heat up financially. How we handle our money, how we think about our money, means a great deal. The way we, the way we handle sex as a non in a non-idolatrous fashion. I don't need to go any further on that one. But sex was given within marriage as a sign of the glory of God in a relationship. And how we deal with that, how we treat that, that topic is going to be of huge witness to those around us. And how we deal with power, how we deal with power systems in the world, we break down those uh, power grids so that we can provide ministry to those who are alienated and those who are left out. So our lifestyle, lifestyle matters. And you know what? And I love what Tim Keller says about it. He says, it's this kind of church and only this kind of church that has any chance in the West. This is the kind of church 
that we want to build. This is the kind of church that we are building, a relevant church that has relevant, uh, a relevant approach to lifestyle. We meet people's unperceived needs. Just as Peter or Philip went to the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot, just as, just as they approached, Peter and John approached the, the, the crippled man, unperceived needs. There have been times when, when uh, people have asked me to pray for them on one particular topic, and then we, as we listen, the Holy Spirit shows us the underlying issue. We need to be listening to what the Holy Spirit wants to say. So people's unperceived needs. When the chips are down, we can speak into people's lives. And it's done through relationship. We need to be happy to build relationship. We need to be happy to know that the Holy Spirit is a relational God. He loves it when we build relationship and we, we win the right to speak into people's lives. Because you know what? It's not if the storms come, it's when the storms come. On all levels, we're filled with boldness. When we're missional, we're filled with the missional spirit of God. We're filled with boldness, folks. We're filled with boldness. He fills our mouth in our obedience. We walk through open doors that we probably would be afraid to do. In fact, we would be afraid to do if it weren't for his filling in our life. And sometimes there will be an apparent response Like I said before, my apparent failures, sometimes there's an apparent response and sometimes there is none, apparently. But you know what? God is at work. God is at work. So don't feel defeated like I have been recently in this area. God really spoke to me this week. Don't be, Gary, my son speaks to me like a son. Don't be defeated. Don't be defeated. You may not have an apparent response, but I'm at work because I'm doing Cornelius stuff with these people. Be a Peter. Right? Cornelius saw a vision of an angel. We just don't know how God is setting up things in those people's lives that we feel we failed in in relationship and in communicating the truths of the gospel. Oh God, I just want an open door. We will be asked by the Holy Spirit to help the poor. Is that clear enough? It's not a maybe, folks. Individually, we will be asked to help the poor. Corporately, we are being asked to help the poor. As a movement, we are being asked to help the poor. Sometimes we're really content with just thinking, well, the church is going to give to the Horn of Africa. Right? Well, that'll come out of the storehouse. You know, we, we, we set aside 10% of our, our giving for things like that. We'll, we'll, we'll you know, hallelujah, we can, we can give out of the storehouse. But what is God asking us individually within the corporate body? What's he asking us as a church family, a, a group of churches, a, you know, family of churches? What's he asking us to do? I know he's asking us to do things. And there is a response that is there. And the other part of that is the Holy Spirit is going to challenge and is challenging our definition of the poor. We need to be thinking about that one. The Holy Spirit is going to challenge and is challenging 
our definition of the poor folks. It's not just those who don't have money. It's not just those who have little. We were with some people recently who I would consider to be poor, yet had much. See, the Holy Spirit covers all the bases. What does it mean? We begin where people are, not where we think they should be. So the Ethiopian eunuch again. We prepared, be prepared to listen more and respond in kind. The Holy Spirit will provide us the clues. We take risks to the Holy Spirit. It's a sure thing. So the next time you're challenged with taking a risk to speak into someone's life or to do something that, that you, seem as, you think, to, think is risky, and you say, where did that come from? Well, it's coming from the Holy Spirit. To us, it's a risk. To the Holy Spirit, sure thing. Again, you're not going to really know, maybe, on the, on the surface, what it looks like in terms of response, but to the Holy Spirit, it's a sure thing. It's a sure thing. It's a sure bet. And finally, it should be encouraging for all of us to know that we're in this thing together. Part of a broader vision of what it means to be living out this promise of the Great Commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So we're together in our successes. We're together in our apparent failures. We're together in spurring one another on. I just want to say, Wednesday night, we as elders and our wives, we were together, and I was just sharing my heart. I was just sharing how just my sense of failure in this area. And what I feel God spoke to me was, out of that, as I've just said, it's apparent failure. And what was really interesting was the strengthening we found from each other in being able to recognize that we're all in the same boat. But you know what? God is the one who has everything in his hands and he uses them as teachable situations. You have to remember that. Rather than putting our head down and thinking we failed, is we, we say, God, thank you. And he moves us on. He's like a, he's dad. He's our dad. He picks us up, dusts us off, a little pat, says, go ahead, try it again, son. What father would, would crush his child because he seemingly failed in learning something? Not the father I know. My earthly father didn't. How much more then will my heavenly father help me? Wrap me up in his arms. Say, you know what? Okay. Here's, why don't you try hitting the ball this way? I love watching Joe with Micah when, a couple of years ago, and he's teaching him how to, how to bat the ball. And Micah would take a few swings, and he, he'd whiff the ball, he'd miss the ball, and Joe would just go up to him, and he'd basically come up behind him, wrap his hands around Micah, hold the bat this way, and then the ball would come, and he'd connect. Because his hands were over Micah's hands. He'd hit the ball. And he'd do that a couple times, back off. 
okay, now, remember what I taught you. He hit the ball. He's a pretty good hitter. He wasn't always a pretty good hitter. Guess what, folks? We're going to be better in living out the complete package of what it means to be missional, but we have a Father that holds our hands and helps us to swing. 